Okay, so you should have an outline in front of you that says, anybody not have an outline? That says, eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel series. Uh, you may note uh, in Roman numeral one there uh, at the top that we began this series May 17th of 2015. So we've been on this series a little more than two years. This is the 113th lesson in the series. And we are now moving forward to element eight. However, most of you, if you've been paying attention, know that we did not finish element seven. And I felt that uh, it would be best to wait a little while to finish element seven. So we will go back to element seven for probably approximately 15 or so weeks. And, uh, but we'll be on element eight, hopefully only for... Uh, Five or so weeks. Um, I'm, we're going to talk about growing in grace and maturing in Jesus Christ in element eight. Uh, this is uh, supplemental to the, and mostly a review of the Grace Upon Grace series. However, there will be a little additional new material, and the Grace Upon Grace series was in 2013. And I imagine that we have people in the church that have not gone back and listened to that on podcasts with the outlines, although we have many people like Jennifer Pett, who was that the first one you listened to, Jennifer? And you've probably listened to more than 100 podcasts by now. Probably, um, probably a couple hundred, I would guess. You're, you're uh, quite the podcast person. While you're on the treadmill, right? <laughs> podcast and treadmill. It seems like a good marriage to me. <laughs> So, um, so uh, Roman numeral one gives you the eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel. If you're new, you might note uh, elements three and four tend to be overlooked in modern Christian presentations of the gospel. Element three, because uh, most evangelical Christianity is what would be called antinomian. However, uh, the ancient uh, church fathers, especially got people like Athanasius and Chrysostom and Augustine, were not antinomian, nor were the reformers, like especially Luther, Calvin, Knox, people like that. Uh, the Puritans were decidedly not antinomian, and so uh, what there's been this tendency to reduce the gospel more and more and more since about the mid 1800s. Uh, that sort of peaked, I hope. <laughs> uh, by the uh, by, the 1980s megachurch movement, and hopefully uh, there will be there are already such as the Gospel Coalition and the Nine Marks of a Healthy Church uh, people who are often at Cedarville uh, University to speak. There are those are just two examples of movements that are trying to say, wait, we need to recover all the missing elements of the biblical Christian gospel, and. Uh, Although I, there aren't a lot of sources out there that would really have recovered most of the message, there are a few, and there are at least several heading that direction. So that's a, a positive sign for the future, we hope, and uh, what we're trying to do is recover that. The uh, element four, the historical narrative of Israel, the only uh, modern book I'm aware of that really does much with that would be uh, Scott McKnight's book called The King Jesus Gospel, and that's a book we have available on our shelves. Um, 
you know, he um, talks about the story of Israel, and I like the historical narrative of Israel because, of course, when, when fundamentalists or evangelicals talk about the story of Israel, they mean the infallible or inerrant, correctly uh, described story of Israel. But when modernists or liberals think, talk about the story of Israel, they just mean it's fictional stories. And I think, we, I think it's very important to remember that history and to always say the historical narrative. That is, that we believe that it really happened and God wrote his story through characters and history, and the Bible is an accurate recording of that, of that story. So that, uh, Scott McKnight doesn't do that, but I, uh, he talks about the story of Israel throughout his book, and, and uh, I got tired of just writing in historical narrative, historical narrative when I read it, and finally I just said, well, forget it. I, I know that, that he should be saying historical narrative. Um, in any case, that's very, very, very important to us, because we have the only faith on the planet, there are, there are eight or so what they, you would call world religions. None of them uh, are rooted in actual historical personages and events. Some of them are pseudo-rooted in historical persons and events. But, uh, for instance, much of the facts of Buddha's life or Muhammad's life have been fictionalized. Uh, the accounts that have come down to us are not historically substantiated where the accounts of Christ's life are, are uh, historically substantiated. The book, you know, for instance, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ could be proven in a court of law. So that's, uh, and no other faith in the, in the earth makes that kind of claim or can make that kind of claim. Our faith is rooted in things that a sovereign God who created time, space, and therefore history and geography, and so forth, that God intervened in history uh, by sending his son, and that God has intervened in history from the beginning in Genesis 1 on through to today, and it continues to intervene in history uh, according to his eternal plan and purpose every minute of every day. In, in fact, you would disintegrate in one second if Jesus Christ was not upholding all things by the word of his power. Right now, Jesus Christ is holding every atom in your body together. And uh, the first encounter you had with the Spirit of God you didn't know about, it was God creating you in the first place and God allowing conception. Um, so anyway, all that's a little extra, no, no extra charge for it, however. We'll uh, give you that, all that for free. Um, in Roman numeral two is listed the five steps of, of entering the kingdom of God, which is the point of element seven, which we did not finish, but we will go back and finish in weeks to come. Uh, today we're moving on to element eight, maturing in Jesus Christ by growing in grace. So one of the things that we're up against in our culture today, uh, if you've never read Diana West's uh, book called The Death of the Grown-Up, uh, it's a great cultural history starting with uh, the invention of the term teenager in the 1940s and with the emergence of the concept of a teenager in the 1950s on through to today where progressively both the secular anti-Christian culture and the Christian culture is really doing a lousy job of growing up. And particularly if there's anything Christian parents are not that good at today, 
is actually growing up their kids um, for a number of reasons, a number of factors. And growing up is a major biblical idea, as hopefully I'm going to at least touch upon in various ways today. Um, God wants us to grow up. Even those of us who are 60 and, and older still are, are being challenged to grow up. Susan, you've got to grow up. <laughs> now, it's okay to grow up in an age-appropriate way, but often people are not growing up in an age-appropriate way, both within the Christian community and the world. And that is one of the greatest opportunities we have as Christians if we can start to grow up in a culture that is avoiding growing up, we can offer real solutions uh, from our life. But most people you, that you know today and most people you help have various arrested development issues in various areas of their life, often relationally, sometimes emotionally, sometimes financially or vocationally. Most people have ways that they have been retarded in their growing up. And uh, one, of the, one of the goals we should have as a community of Christians and as we disciple and mentor and teach and, and, and encourage one another is become more grown up ourselves so that we have the right perspective to help others grow up. You can't help someone get something you don't have. You have to first take the logs out of your own eye before you can see clearly the specks in someone else's eye. And so one prayer you should have is, Lord, show me the areas I have avoided growing up and help me grow up and help me love the brothers and sisters in my life that challenge me to grow up and help me love the parts of Scripture that challenge me to grow up. And help me love that relationship with the Holy Spirit that helps me grow up. Lord, anything that's uh, hindering that, you know, whether it be mindsets, uh, demonic spirits, emotional wounds, spiritual wounds, whatever, Lord, save me from those things. Jesus' salvation is total and complete. It involves every part of your being, in every part of life. And God wants to restore you from everything that was damaged uh, by the fall of man and the rippling effects of that that have come down through the centuries in, in human history. Isn't that exciting? That's exciting. And uh, even if you're 60, you can still grow up. As I challenge myself with, by the grace of God, quite regularly. So for some of us, we need to hear uh, Bob Dylan's song, When Are You Going to Wake Up? And others probably need to hear, When Are You Going to Grow Up? <laughs> so some of us probably need to hear both those songs. All right, so uh, look at Roman numeral three. Today, we're going to talk about maturing in Greece, Jesus Christ. Uh, this is element 8A, small one, and uh, there will probably be at least a small two. I hope not a small three. But 8A, we're going to look at grace and perspective. And uh, again, the note says this may require more than one message. So uh, we're going to look today at grace defined and reevaluated. Hopefully, by now, most people sitting in these pews realize there's a 
uh, a definition of grace that is accepted in every major branch of Christianity today, whether you're talking um, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, uh, mainstream Protestantism or modernist liberal Protestantism, uh, fundamentalist evangelicalism or reformed, uh, those major, major kind of mindsets in Christianity today all define grace uh, in, in a very reduced way from the, how the Bible defines grace. So we're going we're gonna to talk about that. Uh, we're going to look at, that, at the fact that grace is relational and it's dynamic. We have a tendency both in our fallen nature and in the Christian culture today to look at things as conceptual, not conceptual as, as a stepping stone to it being experiential. And we'll talk about that. We're going to look at grace plus theologies because it's inevitable that we have embraced at times things like performance leads to grace or favor, or great, we start by grace, and then we perfect ourselves by performance and so forth. And uh, that's going to be next week. We're going to look uh, a little bit today at the fact that grace gets opposed or, and thwarted at times. And uh, that God has a delivery system of grace, which uh, will be at least next week or the week after that. So, on Roman numeral 4, I've listed some additional resources on grace. The reason we called this church Grace Christian Fellowship is because uh, outside the Trinity, the deity of Christ and the person of Jesus Christ, I don't know that I can think of a more important thing than grace. Grace is fundamental to everything in the Christian life. And that's why a lot of the Christian warfare is grace. Uh, if you notice, the first re resource is John Weiss's Grace uh, Galatians series, which he just finished uh, in mid-August, uh, so that's not that long ago. And it was posted, you can look at it, between July 11th and August 14th under Sermon of the Week. And one of the things that he brought out is in every one of Paul's letters except Galatians, Paul takes time to remind the believers that they are in Christ by the grace of God and that there are many commendable, wonderful things that God is doing in their midst, and he praises them for a number of things. Even the Corinthians. And if there's anything, uh, if you want some good instruction, compare American Christianity to Corinthian Christianity. It's a very parallel kind of situation where uh, uh, our Christianity and what the Corinthians were up against is so similar, hook, line, and sinker, across the board, all sorts of issues. You know, he, uh, Paul says you, that you're, you're divided. Are we divided? I think so. Uh, and therefore, I cannot give you solid food, and I can't speak to you like adults, but I have to speak to you like infants. And so we know by, def by, by Paul's statements that what's in First and Second Corinthians would qualify as the milk of the faith, the beginning or foundational ideas. But even the Corinthians, Paul finds a lot of things to praise them about. 
even though there was one guy in the church living, you know, living with his stepmother and nobody was doing anything about it. There were people coming drunk to the communion table and they were denying other, some people based on their poverty or whatever access to the communion table, like you're not as cool as us, <laughs> you know. Uh, they were dividing, they, were, they had factions over, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Christ. That was the spiritual ones they thought. You know, be, I would, no, I don't know that Apollos. Or, and uh, of course, you know, Paul is the apostle of grace and the, and the apostle of the Holy Spirit. So they were kind of the charismatic element, you'd say. Then there was the, I'm of Peter. Peter uh, is, the, is the one who lay, was the original uh, kind of the original voice among the apostles. They're the church government people. They're the like, we're the Presbyterians or we're the Episcopalians. We got the church government issues right. You know? And, uh, and the ones that were Paul, like we have the, we have the grace and, and the Holy Spirit issues right. And, the, and uh, the ones of Apollos, Apollos was mighty or eloquent in the scripture. No, they were like the reform people today. Like we really know the Bible. Like the janitors in our church know theology and Greek and, and Hebrew and, and everything like that. You, you know, you're not allowed to sweep the parking lot unless you have about a doctorate in biblical studies and theology. And these people were... Uh, one-upping each other. Yet Paul is very willing to commend them for all the great things God's doing in their midst. Not so with the Galatians. Right from verse 6, he, he's quick about his greeting, he praises them about nothing, and he begins to confront them about the fact that they have fallen into a performance-based approach to God. And that, that that is rooted, as John brought out so well, in the fear of man. Galatians 1.10, if I was still trying to please men, I could not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. You know, most people who are a little bit tossed to and fro and unstable, uh, you know, in their jobs or in their economic thing or in whatever, most people that are unstable in various ways are man-pleasers. And they're really struggling with... Uh, getting a firm root of doing what God wants them to do. Uh, that's, so the Galatians had those kinds of problems. Uh, John also did a series in 2013 called The Five Solas. Now, if you're not familiar with the Reformation history, the Reformation centered around the, the, the word sola, which means alone or only, and there were five of those solas. Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone. Which one I'm leaving out? What is it? Oh, sola de gloria. That's uh, for the glory of God alone. And sola gracia is the, is the idea that it's got to be grace upon grace, not grace plus performance, grace plus this, grace plus that. And... Uh, so uh, I would commend those series to you. You can always email Deanna or Stephen to get outlines for most of the series. John doesn't do an outline the same way I do, but he uh, is usually willing to send his notes, um, and that can be helpful. I listed a couple books there that are by modern guys about grace. Now, unfortunately, grace is a big issue today, and there are lots of books out there. 
But most of the evangelical guys writing about grace are writing against a background of a doctrine called antinomianism, and therefore their ideas about grace are quite limited in their value. And I don't like to point out names, so I won't. Uh, But a lot of the big-name guys who are writing very popular books about grace, uh, you could do a lot better than that. Because one of the problems with fundamentalists and evangelical types of Christianity is it kind of steps away from church history and doesn't consider how other Christians have thought and lived through the centuries. And so that's, that's very problematic. And, uh, and introduce all new ways of approaching uh, saying that we're Bible-believing and that we follow the Bible. But not the way that Christians historically have followed the Bible. And not, not the same paradigms. So therefore, if you look next, I list three very excellent sources of historical writings if you want to study grace from other time periods. Look at any of the ancient church fathers. I've listed three of those. And Greg, Jason, John, or Andy Gearhart could help you uh, with that if you want. There's probably others like Nathan and Stephen could help you with that as well. If you want to find some sources to read, say what St. Augustine had to say about grace. Um, then, of course, the, the uh, reformers, and I, I underline Luther just to make him stand out, because R- Luther's commentary on Galatians is uh, one of the most famous books in Christian history, and on that short list of maybe 100 Christian books that everyone should have read, kind of thing. And um, it was the issue that, that started the Reformation. Uh, you know, Andy shared with me that he uh, got fired at his first church, and he, most, uh, he mostly got fired from, because he taught grace. And the, pe- the people didn't want that teaching. Because grace is offensive. Because grace starts with, you're a real loser. <laughs> and you're a sinner, you're wrongly motivated, there's nothing at all good that dwells in you. Every motivation of your heart is perverted, corrupt, and and wicked. And Jesus loves you anyway. (laughs) And God accepts you right where you're at. Just as I am without one plea. Uh, Grace is offensive. Grace is saying you got nothing and God chose to love you. And you didn't even have the one little bit of self-righteousness like you decided to get saved. You actually were running from Christ. There's none who seeks for God, no, not one. And he decided that he would win instead of you. And that's why you're in Christ today. If you had been allowed to win, you would still be an unbeliever. Whether you were raised in a Christian home, whether you were a goody two-shoes who never stole any cars and never murdered any cops and never smoked any weed or whatever you consider to be the bad things to do, uh, whatever your particular antinomian list of of legalistic bad things to do is, uh, whether you, you know, ate jelly donuts or whatever whatever you think is like a really bad sin, um, you know... uh, you, uh, more importantly than any of that, you were even if you were a goody two-shoes who grew up in a Christian religious family, you were trying to avoid grace. You were trying to assert your own self-righteousness. 
and even in the church, we, like most of our division is about self-righteous posturing. That, you know, like I want to make sure, in my insecurity, I want to make sure you know that I know something. So many conversations, it's hard to get past the, the person that actually is doing that to you. <laughs> like, um, you know, one of the most wonderful ways you'll grow, I, I uh, was actually, you know, my wife and I spent uh, 12 years out of the ministry raising our kids after we had started three churches, and uh, we were in, uh, we tried not to church hop, but we really couldn't find some place to fit in, and so we were in three different church movements over a 12 or so year period, and in almost all of them, uh, there were things that we understood about the things of God that, that maybe the pastor and the leaders of that church didn't, and we never told them that because we assumed God sent us here to find out what they know about the things of God that we don't. That's why we're here. So they, it's just insecurity to want to let them know who we are and what our experience is and, and you know, that we've been fruitful in the past or whatever. Who cares? I want to know why did God send us here and what has God put in this pastor for us to learn? Tell us what books we should read. Tell us what attitudes we should have. Can we sweep the floors and clean up the pizza boxes? That would be such a blessing. <laughs> you know, help us do that. And uh, in fact, uh, you know, one of my good friends is Pastor Dan Brown of the church right up with the stone, uh, nice church up there on the corner. And how I got to know Pastor Brown is one night he, was, he actually started washing the gym floor after the youth group had met there because he realized the ladies had a thing in the gym, the gym the next day and he had forgotten to have the custodial staff get scheduled to get the gym ready. So he decided he was going to wash the floor himself. And so I saw him on his hands and knees washing the floor. And so I got down on my hands and knees and started washing the floor with him. And before long, uh, all my kids were washing the floor with him. <laughs> and we stayed there till about one that morning, even though it was a school night, washing the floor. And, and, uh, and uh, it was a great time. And one of the other staff guys who I'm very good friends with, a pastor named Ben Bay, uh, told me, he goes, you know, the, the next Tuesday... Pastor Brown said, I don't know who this Greg Weiss guy is, but I'm going to get to know him. <laughs> and, uh, and that's really how I began to get discipled by him. And he taught me several things about the kingdom of God and God's ways that I didn't know, even though I was educated in the biblical things a lot more than he was. Does that make sense? You, I, I need you to hear that. That will make or break how much you grow in the Lord. So many times people are full of insecurities and they're trying to let you know what they know when you're talking with them. And, you know, I remember having a pastor who was very motivated about biblical studies and theology and stuff like that. And the first thing the Lord dealt with me on is when, whenever he was explaining any question I'd ask him, whenever he was explaining it, I knew about 90% of what he was saying. We went to grad school together. We grew up in the Lord together and so forth. And I realized if I focus on saying, I know, I know, I know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to miss that 10% or whatever of what he's sharing that God wants me to get and to learn. And I don't need to be insecure and try to get him to know what I know. 
Now, I didn't mean to get on this point at all, but I, I have a feeling that this will be helpful for some. That, I hope you can hear what I'm saying there. All right, so let's get into, uh, I got 15 to 20 minutes to get into the actual material. Got the introduction done in just a mere 30 minutes. Uh, <laughs> so, point, Roman numeral five, grace defined and reevaluated. Some of you know this already. But the standard definition in every branch of Christianity today, there's very few things that all Christians agree on outside the things in the, say, the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. But every Christian today would tell you grace is unmerited favor. We had uh, a Bible study on, starting on the Grace Upon Grace series at, at Cedarville, and I said, what does grace mean? And Chris Like said, it's unmerited favor. Uh, because everyone says that. And it is that, but that's about 2% of the definition of grace. That's like saying, you know, uh, Sam Chin Poon is a guy from Singapore. That's true, but there's a lot more to Sam than that he came from Singapore. <laughs> and I hope you'll get to know all the things God has deposited in him that you need to know. So uh, let's look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 8. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So, do you know that Susan Weiss, she was here earlier, I guess she went out with John, she didn't choose which parents to be born to. Did any of you choose your parents? You know, I saw a bumper sticker the other day that says, you know, at least you can choose, a, you know, which dog you want. You know, you can't choose your parents or your brothers and sisters or your family. And we, you really don't choose your church if you're walking with Christ. You go to the church God wants you in. And you can choose to love God and obey him or not. But uh, So he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Jesus said in John 15, 16, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That was a, that's pretty long ago, I think. As we measure time. That we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons. There's a whole message on adoption earlier in this series. I uh, encourage you to listen to that because adoption is a huge topic and it's more than you think it is. According to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved because we were so worthy. Oh, wait, that's my modern translation. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Isn't that awesome? Deuteronomy 7 talks about how God chose Israel. But so many people think it's taught all over the place today that the Old Testament's about performance and law and the New Testament's about grace. That is not true. Did Adam and Eve choose to create themselves? And in fact, even most covenant theologies say that the, the original covenant that, that God had with Adam was a covenant of works. That is just deception and foolishness. It was a covenant of grace. All covenants are a covenant of grace. 
God was not required to create anything or anyone. He created them out of his grace, and he extended covenant and relationship out of his grace, and it was only by his grace that they could do the terms of the covenant, which is why everyone has failed the terms of the government throughout, throughout human history, and God had to send Jesus to establish uh, us as obedient servants of the covenant. Now, I wish I could develop that more. Uh, Romans 3.24, being justified as a gift by his grace and so forth. But grace is so much more than that. It's empowerment that enables, equips, and transforms us by his glory, through his glory, to, do, to manifest his glory, and to, which is part of doing his will. And God has actually called each of us individually not through the door of Christ in his grace, into his kingdom to be a part of his people. Uh, and it's not about this lone ranger and me and my personal devotions and, and so forth. God has called you to be a, he's always wanted a people in the earth that would show forth his glory. Every Christian is called into family and community in the body of Christ. In Acts 20, 32, a very important speech because Paul, the context is that Paul, on his way to Jerusalem before he got arrested and sent back to Rome, uh, which he you know, had always wanted to go to Rome. I guess he just didn't think that he would get there in chains. <laughs> but uh, he was always hoping to go to Rome, but he was like, Lord, I was had sort of another way to get there in mind. But uh, nevertheless, he, on his way to Jerusalem before he got sent and changed to Rome, he realizes that the Lord has revealed to him that he's not ever going to go through Asia Minor again, and he's never going to see the Ephesians. So he calls for the elders of the church. And if you can't, if you can't get emotional about this, you're probably dead. Uh, you know, he's, he's labored in there. He's their spiritual father. They're his children. They're part of his plan to be part of Christ's plan to change the whole world for Christ. And if you're not passionate about changing the whole world for Christ, I, you need to actually go back to your conversion and say, was I really fully converted? If it's not something that, like, makes you... You think about every day, like, how can I become more Christ-like? How can I know more? How can I become more fruitful, more effective? How can I uh, grow in gifts so I can actually bless other people to go further in Christ? How, how can I have more to give? That should be a passion for you that you're pursuing every minute of every day. And... Uh, if not, go back to the gospel in the first place because the gospel is more than about the modern idea of forgiveness and a sinner's prayer. The gospel is a calling to be part of a radical mission people. And there's nobody in the New Testament that wasn't called to, be, to bear fruit that remains and to become fishers of men from the beginning. The reason Peter, Andrew, James, and John left their fathers and their fathers' boats and and they didn't have all the spiritual confusion that it takes us three or four years to get out of people, is because right from the beginning, Jesus said, I chose you to be bear fruit, and your fruit would remain. You're going to be fishers of men. And you need to filter everything through, how's this helping me in the corporate effort to fish? How, how fruitful of a fisherman am I getting? 
you know, if I'm not that fruitful, I better be thinking, rethinking this. I had a guy that I helped come to Christ and disciple for a while named John Shipatello. And John Shipatello was a great fisherman. And there's different kinds of fishing. And he used to take me to the Maumee River to snag walleye. And uh, snagging is a whole different kind of thing, but you kind of somehow feel when the fish is near there and you do some little motion that gets the fish on the hook. And uh, he would just pull one fish out of another out, and I just couldn't get it. <laughs> you know? And, uh, you know, the, but part of the problem was this was my first time, and it wasn't his first time. And he had the right equipment and the right knowledge, and he'd studied it and, uh, and practiced and so forth. That's why when David killed Goliath, they wanted him to wear Saul's armor. He said, no, I haven't practiced with that armor. I uh, used to coach 7th and 8th grade ba uh, baseball kids who won the city league uh, four time, three times, second place one first year won our division and then and they went on when they were nine and ten to finish sixth in the country in jesse hangs baseball which is a different kind of baseball than little league it's more like real baseball and uh <laughs> well i mean they have stealing and and ca real catchers and little league has a lot of non-baseball little kids rules but jesse haynes you play like grown-up rules and uh and um forgot what I, what I wanted to say about this. It's, you know, we, we practiced the right things. The, we, we didn't have any more talented kids or whatever. We just were dedicated to a task that we had set to do. That's very important. So grace is empowerment. He tell, Paul tells the Ephesians, I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. Think about that. In other words, the scripture isn't some conceptual thing. It's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's doing stuff in your mind and your heart when you read it. It's active. It's powerful. It's breaking the rocks of your hard, hardened heart. Is not his word like a fire and his uh, word like a hammer that breaks the rock? That's in a part of the Bible we don't read anymore called the Old Testament. Oh. So that's, that's huge. We're going to look at the scripture as God's powerful word to change your life and to give you the inheritance among all those he is sanctifying as part of this uh, little part of, uh, as part of essential element eight. Uh, Acts 4.33, with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. Romans 1, through whom, Jesus Christ through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Nobody preaches on that verse today. I've never heard a sermon on that in 43 years. Why? Because grace and faith to bring about the obedience, that would not be popular. You wouldn't sell any books or have any radio following. But both in Romans 1 and Romans 15, Paul talks about the grace he received to bring about the obedience that faith produces. 
you know, so many Christians have good devotional lives and so forth, and then they're involved in all kind of financial schemes, or they're lousy workers at their job, or they have relationships that they leave unreconciled. How, how many times has someone had a, a problem with another brother or sister and just let it fester? Hebrews tells us, in Hebrews 12, I don't, yeah, I even have it down at the bottom. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and many be defiled. How many of us don't walk in that verse? How many of us have a beef or a hurt or a, uh, we're upset about something and we just let it fester? And we just sit further away from that person at the dinners or don't go to that church or whatever. Don't ever leave a church based on the fact that you're having relationship problems. The only valid reason to leave a church is when you're going to a church that is going to take you deeper and take you further and is more challenging. Never go somewhere to avoid conflict. 1 Corinthians 15, But by the grace of God I am what I am. Are you what you are by, by a powerful thing called grace? Or is your life just a product of, well, I was brought up this way, and I didn't, you know, and this isn't how I was taught, and, then, and therefore, uh, you know, and I... Are you a, a, just a product of what's happened to you in the natural realm? Or are you a product of grace upon grace that's caused you to be uh, capable of doing amazing things? One of the things Paul rebukes the Corinthians about is he says, you're walking like mere people. <laughs> like, in other words, you're not that supernatural. Your life looks like something a normal person could do. Are there exploits that God's using you to do that a human being couldn't do? You know, use that filter sometimes at the end of the day when you're praying there. Are there things that only by the grace of God could that have been done today? That no normal person could do this. One of the things I'm most thankful for is God constantly brings people into my life that I have to go like, oh my God, <laughs> like if, if you don't change this person, God, there's nothing going to happen because this is way beyond what I know. Some, a lot of you were that way when I started with you. <laughs> and I was that way when God started with me. <laughs> Thank, thankfully, God didn't go, I don't know if I can handle this guy. <laughs> but believe me, a lot of people who were working with me thought I had that thought. <laughs> uh, you know. All right. Let's move on. Uh, there's, there's other verses there. Uh, draw near with confidence to find grace. Humble yourselves, find grace in, in the eldership of the church, and, and all sorts of verses. Now, I want to get into real quickly that grace is relational and dynamic. We talked on this a little bit already, but notice that when it talks, the very theme verse of our Grace Upon Grace series is uh, John 1, 16 and 17, and notice that it says that grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. That's an experiential word. Today we've reduced Christianity to, like we, we actually measure one another up, like when you two Christians meet, I, I watch this dynamic all the time, 
what do you believe and what do you think it's morally acceptable to do or not? <laughs> In other words, are your legalistic rules compatible with my legalistic rules? <laughs> and are your doctrines the same as our doctrines? Because we've reduced it to a conceptual thing. And then I can like you if, if we're a, whew, I'm glad you hate the same people we hate. What? (laughs) Even of Jesus, it says the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing. Those are all becoming words. Those are all growing words. Those are all dynamic, living, changing words. Increasing in wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. Now, when you look at words on grace, we have in the Search of Scripture series, uh, chapter 2b is about different words on, uh, for knowledge in the Greek, and we cover about 30-some words. But they mostly break down into two categories, knowing about and knowing experientially. And the word I want to bring to our attention is, um, is the word gnosko, which is actually when it says that Joseph didn't know Mary until after the birth of Christ. It's used in all through the Septuagint, that is the Greek version of the Old Testament, and all through the New Testament to talk about sexual intimacy. And the, God wants you to have that kind of knowledge of him. He wants you to be spiritually uh, intimate with him. He wants you to experience his spirit. He wants you to know his heart. He wants your heart to break over what his heart breaks over. He wants you to have a problem with starting to cry in the middle of your sentences because God has put so much compassion in you. He wants you to rejoice when he's rejoicing. Remember in Matthew 11, it says, At this time Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Lord, and he said, Lord, I thank you that you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, and you've revealed them to babes. He rejoiced over what God rejoiced over, what the Father rejoiced over. He was God, of course, and is God. But he rejoiced over what the Father rejoiced over. I love Ephesians 3. You could uh, read the whole verse 14 to 21, but verse 19 says that Paul is praying a series of things for the Ephesians, and he says, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Now, I always joke with young Christians just to shake them up a little bit. That's a contradiction, isn't it? It is in English. <laughs> it's not in Greek. But I want you to know something that surpasses the, your ability to know it. <laughs> See, there's contradictions, at least in the English version of the Bible. <laughs> there are. The, you know that the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen <laughs> through the things that are made. Romans 1.20. Oh, there's no, there's no uh, contradictions in the Bible. Well, there is in English. <laughs> you know, obviously it's not a contradiction. He's saying, I want you to experience the love of Christ that goes way beyond your ability to intellectually grasp it. Is your, is your faith only about the doctrines you know? So many young people and so much homeschooling sometimes and different and things like this and sometimes Christian schools are about like, I know all the right doctrines, 
but has the grace of, have you had radical experiences with the grace of God that have broke you down and built you back up and really formed who you are and how you think and what your motivations are and what your attitudes in life are? God wants that for all of us. Now, my last point for today, and I'm way past time, is that grace can be thwarted, diverted, replaced, or die. And those are different words. I wish I had time to develop them. But, uh, again, Hebrews 12 says uh, that, that you don't, don't fall short of the grace of God. Guess what that means? That means it's possible to fall short of the grace of God in certain situations. And then he tells the Galatians... You're severed from Christ you're, when you're seeking to be just, when you're walking performance based. You've actually fallen from grace. I wish I could develop this, but we're out of time. Grace can be thwarted. Grace can be diverted. Grace can be replaced. Next week we're going to look at attitudes that you need to have and actions you need to do to be able to acquire grace. And one of the ironic twists of all that is you have to start by resting in grace and doing nothing except receiving grace. <laughs> and, and then that grace will cause you to do a lot of stuff, <laughs> but not because you have to. So we'll uh, pick that up next week uh, as we look at what it means to acquire more grace or to grow in grace and how we, uh, how we keep grace from dying or being thwarted or replaced by performance or something else in our life. Amen.